The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to Scorebox. You're watching the show with Karen Cho, of course, and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Well, the rally has stalled, hasn't it? U.S. equities on track for 2% weekly declines, whilst the Asian markets heading for their third straight week of losses. This is rate concerns and a growing debt crisis rattle investor confidence. China's struggling property giant Evergrande files for bankruptcy protection in the United States as the country's state-owned developers uh, sound the alarm, warning of widespread losses in the sector. Japan core inflation eases, boosting expectations the BOJ might stand pass as the dollar retreats. Bitcoin falls as much as 9%, reversing most of its gains since June after SpaceX reportedly sells off its holdings to the tune of $373 million. It's been a rough old trading week for markets and the Reading continuing stateside, as you can see, done more than 1%. Uh, investors again taking stock of yields and the tech story just coming unstuck again. And you can see uh, big moving names to the downside, the likes of Apple, for instance. Uh, that was one stock that undermined the direction of the S&P 500 and also the Nasdaq. Uh, one of the tech stocks to outperform was Cisco on the back of numbers. In terms of the Dow, though, worth noting just the journey we've had at a sector level over the course of the session yesterday. Uh, sectors that were negative 10 out of 11, uh, the downside led by consumer discretionary. Engie was one of the better performers in session yesterday, so just uh, helping out the Dow. So perhaps we could have been down even more than the 290-odd points that we saw off the markets. Worth noting that banking names have had a very difficult week, uh, four negative sessions in a row and down to the tune of more than 5%, almost 6% for the trading week. So a lot of patches of uh, this market uh, certainly undermined over the trading week. Let's take a look at uh, how it shapes up with that red ink from the Thursday session uh, banked over the course of the trading week. We're down 2.3% on the Dow, 2.1% off the S&P and 2.4% down from the Nasdaq. So in lockstep across the board, the major boards have been in reverse. It is that yield story. Let's take a look at that US 10-year Treasury yield. The highest level we've seen since back to 2008 is what we've witnessed. The spike now, as uh, we've seen demonstrated on this chart today, 4.25%. To the dollar trade on the back of that high yield story, and don't forget the March has been up from the 4.16 level last Friday. The market's responding by also scooping up dollar trades. This morning, sterling on the back foot as a result, 127.42, just slipping a fraction. Euro has been in focus, though. We have seen some strength in that trade, and it is holding up versus Greenback this morning. Dollar on the back foot versus the Japanese yen, 145.45. We're going to be talking about that a lot this morning. Intervention levels for Japanese authorities, the dollar on the back foot versus the yuan. So just giving back a little bit of territory morning session. To the trades we are seeing around the commodities complex, WTI Brent, it is a mixed picture. Brent slightly weaker, 84 the handle. WTI uh, a fraction ahead, just above 80, 80.43 on the chart. Spot gold, we're still below that 1900 level, although we do have a little bit of morning action to the upside. 
And uh, just diving into the China markets, and one of the big headlines here is that China Evergrande Group has filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy protection in New York. The indebted property developer defaulted back in 2021. That raised concerns over the sector's growing debt crisis. But who would have thought, given us what a giant it is in the sector, in the property sector? But you can see uh, the impact again, the Hang Seng trading down, where a lot of the property stocks are listed 1.3, 1 1.4% roughly in the red. The Japanese stock market also running into somewhat of a brick wall of late. A lot of foreign investors seemingly done most of their buying. That market uh, down seven tenths of a percent. Shanghai weaker, Australia just holding out steady at this point. Steve. Karen, there is so much to digest. How are you, by the way? Thank you. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, my love. Look, um, there's so much for you and I to digest. So many geopolitical factors that are coming together that just adding a little bit of a shake to these markets. I'll just add one more into the mix as well, because the Japanese inflation figure, well, some people looking at the headline, others looking at the core. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll do better than that. We'll do core core for you, because I think it's, it's very pertinent. Japanese core inflation hit 3.1% in July. That is down from 3.3% the month before. But this is the point. The core core inflation, which is the Bank of Japan's preferred inflation indicator, it takes out all those pesky things that none of us use, such as food and energy. Well, of course, I'd be ironic. Uh, but there, it actually rose. So the core core rose, and that's a great board. Thank you, team. 4.3%. So for all those people looking at the core figure again, it's decelerated. Or the headline figure saying, oh, it's only flat. The fact of the matter is the core core figure is over twice the level which the Bank of Japan is aiming for. Now, that was up on the month, as I say, although analysts uh, see that as a sign that services and demand-led inflation is increasing, of course, something the BOJ has been looking for. Now, it comes a day after the dollar crossed the 146 mark versus the yen, putting markets on alert for possible intervention from the BOJ. However, today's CPI print has given the BOJ some room to breathe. Well, it depends which bit you look at, doesn't it? That's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, with the dollar just backing down uh, a tad as well. We'll get to our guest in a few moments' time. But uh, just, just before we get to him as well, I mean, there are so many factors in this market at the moment. And we, had, uh, we have a brilliant guest called David Roche. And if anyone doesn't listen to David Roche, then they are what he just said. And that is, because he said yesterday on air, I said, why is it that all these crises going on around the world, why is it that Western investors seem very glib to a lot of the EM crises that 25 years ago shook the world? And he said, because they're stupid. And we don't get many commentators talking like that about our audience or, or about the, about the, the world. But, it, but, but if you don't look at Argentina and have a slight wobble, you don't look at Russia and Turkey and, and China and all these other little concerns, big concerns going on, and the mere inconvenient fact that we have a devastating war in Europe as well, and you aren't worried by any of these having tail effects, then you are, as he said, stupid. I think there are a lot of uh, different events for investors to seize upon, but I wonder whether the epicentre of the issues really this week is the United States. Real yields, just uh, inflation-adjusted yields. I think the market has closely been looking at them. We've seen an escalation of the last two weeks, and the reality is, for a lot of commentators, the Fed wants to keep those real yields higher to compress inflation. And that real yield story very much impacting the cost of capital for technology companies. You've seen the sell off on the markets, the stock market, as a result of those yes, yields yes, escalating. Yes. Yeah, two points I'll make here. One, 
Um, you talked about the US markets, all over 2% lower so far. A lot can change for the week as well. I'll double down on that. The Dow Transport's down 3.5% for the week. The Russell 2K is a waffle thin 0.1% away from down 4% for the week. These are big declines. And the point I really want to make, uh, even though I've already made about 20, uh, is the fact is you get paid for not taking too much risk at the moment. If you're going to hold to duration, you get more money than you've had this century for holding bonds. And that's very interesting. Uh, let's get to uh, our next guest. Alim Remtula joins us, Chief FX Trashes at EFG International. Alim, Karen and I have been shooting the breeze about various factors, but, but this must be making your world very, very interesting at the moment. Tell us a little bit about the FX drivers as you see it, sir. Uh, definitely. It's been a very busy month or even uh, I'd say for the first two weeks of August. I would add that this is August. It's a very thin tra trading season and um, and trading volume and trading volumes are low. So it brings in a lot of volatility as well. So it's adding um, a bit more movement in, in markets than many central bankers would, would like. But I think really what's driving things right now in August is that we had we've got high frequency figures coming out of the U.S. suggesting that uh, an annual growth in the third quarter in the U.S. is as high as six six per percent. That we also had growth in Japan in the second quarter at an annualized rate as well at six six percent. So I think as much as rates have increased by five hundred basis points or more in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world, we're still seeing very strong growth, and I think that's bringing a a lot of mo momentum to the long end of the of, of the yield curve and this bear steepening to see where the risk-free rate is and at what point we really start to see uh, some trembles in equities and some trembles in com commodities as well and that's what we've seen in the last few weeks. Um, yes, a two-week story really for that huge escalation on the real yield story. The market's also just closely eyeing financial conditions. There was an index uh, effectively showing us that we've escalated in August, the highest level seen since May. This is a Goldman Sachs index. And effectively, uh, it, there's been a little bit of water to tread. We had a peak back in October, but now we seem to see escalating those conditions, financial conditions now as well. What do you make of how the dollar performs at this juncture? Because often it can be a defensive play, and we've certainly seen a steep rally off the lows in July. I think we still have a strong, strong dollar view for the third quarter. Again, this is coming off uh, strong growth coming through the first quarter, the second quarter, and now it looks like the third quarter as well. And in that sense, uh, if the Fed seems to be hold, holding rates, perhaps they raise, they they hike in in September. That's not clear, but we're looking at a terminal rate of about 5.5%, 5.7. But just as importantly, the Fed has succeeded in pushing out any any rate cuts into the fourth fourth excuse me into 20, 2024 so really uh and it doesn't seem we've from the minutes you know it seems like there might be a, another hike coming um perhaps there's some some maintenance cuts in 2024 but the message we're getting out of the fed is the economy is strong rates will be held of where they are and on the other side of the story is weak growth coming out of europe uh, more and more bad data coming out of China. And until that changes, we have a very firm dollar view for the third quarter. 
Um, let's talk about where that leaves other central banks uh, and other policy setters because we've seen uh, the data coming out of China. It's been weaker and weaker over the course of the last number of months. This seems to also be catching up with the Japanese stock market. Uh, investors there have just turned shy after a lot of optimism around the uh, corporate uh, mantle to try and increase profitability. The yen's been in focus on the back of the, this story. And now we're talking about a Japanese uh, finance minister watching the FX with a sense of urgency. What do you make of uh, the prospects now for the Japanese yen? I think, again, for the first two weeks of August, it's the yen has been depreciating against the dollar by about 1.7% per over these first two weeks. That is a rate that is much too high. So that can't con continue. But if you look at over on a year-over-year -year rate, um, the appreciation of the dollar against the yen hasn't been as egregious as we saw back in 2022. So in that sense, it's very much... It's less of a level con concern and more of a rate of change con concern. Uh, I think they are, you're starting to hear some rhetorical pushback, as you said, from the Ministry of Finance. I think also if you're starting to see more worries about uh, the strength of the U.S. economy as real rates start to approach 2% 2 on, on, on the 10-year, um, at least on that side, it's less of the pressures from widening yields against dollar yields start to diminish as well. I think you also get some benefit for J Japan if you start to see more speculation about intervention on, by the part of the P PBOC in Ch China. That takes off some of the attention off of the Bank of Japan and takes some of the attention off of what's going on with the yen and allows some pushback in markets speculation that uh, this the, the, the trends we've seen for the last two weeks can't can, continue at least at the same pace as, the, as, as they've been for the last 10 days. Alim, everything you've said so far makes total sense. What our viewers want from you, uh, some more specific calls as well, if we can as well. You've said you like the dollar, but give us some pairs that our, our viewers can get their teeth into. The pairs. Um, we don't like to give an, any specific rates, but we, we do have a strong do dollar view, as I said. I think it's right now, I think central bankers are just trying to get through Jackson Hole without anything breaking. I think once we get into September, we'll have an idea of it. If, if the Fed is done, more importantly, if the ECB is done, if we start to see some growth coming out of, uh, of, of, of Europe as well. And I think we'll be watching closely any type of um, policy response coming out of China, if it's stimulus on, on the stimulus side, on, on the monetary side, where they're f fixing the, 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 the daily fix on the yuan. Um, but we, we're still dollar strong until we have a good reason um, to, and I think at the same time, it won't take much growth outside of, of, of the U.S. for us to have a more, uh, a view of a soft landing, a global soft landing for the, for the entire world. And that, and that would be, uh, stronger towards Australia, stronger towards the yen, stronger towards, towards Europe as well. But until we see some signs of stabilization and perhaps some growth, we're still very strong on the dollar for the third quarter. Alim, I don't I can't work out if you're of the same vintage. I think you're younger than me. Of course you are. Everyone is. But but I'm of the vintage that I remember 1997 and the spread of the dominoes in the East Asia crisis. I remember 1998 with the LTCM and the Russia crisis as well. Uh, any of these um, crises we're seeing from Turkey to Argentina uh, across EM at the moment that seem to be bubbling up, especially with that stronger dollar and the refinancing concerns, should our viewers be specifically worried about any of them creating contagion? 
I think absolutely in China, just because of the size of, of, of the economy. But I'd also just remind everyone that last year we've seen crises uh, in, here in, in Switzerland regarding Credit Suisse. We've seen it with the uh, Silicon Valley Bank in the U.S. We've seen it in London with their fiscal L LDI crisis, even in India with the uh, with the Adani affair. Um, and markets have been able to climb those walls of worries and 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 have can can continue to to the point where the U.S. is tracking for almost six percent growth in the third quarter with rates at five hundred and fifty. 50 basis points. Uh, so I think as much as these con concerns are real, and especially in large uh, gl global economies like Ch China, we've also come a long way and we've got through a lot of crises that haven't broken down the global financial system. Alim, we're going to leave it there, sir. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, for joining us from lovely Lugano as well. Alim Remtula, who is Chief FX Strategist at EFG International. Good to see you, sir. Let's tell you what's coming up on the show this morning. And just under a week from Javier Mele's shock win in Argentina, primaries election, uh, the primary elections, the peso is down more than 20%. We're going to discuss the economic impact of Mele's firebrand politics. Also shedding value Bitcoin. The risk-off sentiment spills over into crypto with the currency plunging below the 25,000 mark overnight before pairing back some losses. And we will discuss the 21st century's new uh, means uh, of warfare, potentially, uh, with Chris Miller. I've read this book. I love this book. I recommend you absolutely watch that interview at 7.30 London, 8.30 CET. Uh, he's the author of Chip Wars, uh, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Uh, that's coming up, as I say, at 7.30 London time. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. The latest out of China and the uh, very large company in focus today is China Evergrande Group, which has filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy protection in New York in a move which protects the company from legal actions by its creditors as it seeks to restructure. Evergrande defaulted in 2021, shining a light on the country's wider property debt crisis. It had $330 billion in liabilities as of July, according to Reuters. Shares have been suspended for almost 18 months. New data from S&P Global Ratings shows annual home sales for the top 100 developers in China fell by around a third in June and July, a marked pullback from the double-digit growth the sector saw earlier in the year. That means trouble for cash flows since most apartments in the country are sold before completion and also for the wider economy, with the real estate sector accounting for just under a third of China's GDP. Investors in another troubled Chinese firm, Zhongzhi, have reportedly received home visits from police, urging them to refrain from public protests. This according to Bloomberg and comes after the company reportedly told investors it needs to restructure its debt. The Zhongzhi-backed shadow bank Zhongrong missed payments on multiple products this week and said it doesn't have an immediate plan to cover them. CNBC's Eunice Yoon filed this report from Beijing. 
Security was tight at the Beijing office of trust firm Zhongrong today. The company has set up a registration desk to handle investors who are showing up demanding their money back. In the past day or so, videos emerged online and were later censored, purportedly posted by angry investors at the office. We saw about a dozen investors there, very worried and agitated. Staff confirmed to us that some of the products wouldn't be paid back due to the larger liquidity issues of the underlying investments. Zhongrong has sizable real estate exposure. On the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges, investors have filed hundreds of inquiries to listed companies asking about their potential links to Zhongrong as well as to property giant Country Garden, which now faces default. The police presence around China's new financial regulator is now heavier. There are now reports that some investors want to take their cases to government authorities. Eunice Yoon, CNBC Business News, Beijing. Uh, that's Eunice Yoon. There are so many reports going around at this moment. You and I get to cherry pick because there's just so much going on. Um, Longview Economics put out a report um, yesterday uh, just looking at the potential contagion risks for investors, for consumers, for local states and indeed for the government and its economic plan as well. And basically saying this will not stop unless there is a government bazooka. It will not stop unless there is one. So then I moved on to look at uh, a different source, actually. The, the Daily Telegraph in London, there's a, a terrific journalist who uh, I've known for many years, Ambrose Evans Pritchard. And he's pointing out a couple of other different things. I'll just pull one or two stats from that as well. He's talking about a chap called Kai Fang, who is a rate setter at the central bank, who has now called for five hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of helicopter money to be injected into the veins of the economy to stop uh, a deflationary psychology taking hold uh, an imperative now uh, to get that money to stimulate spending as well uh, the same piece by uh, ambrose evans pritchard has got some enormous stats in i know you and i've both been looking at a lot of these as well uh, i'll just pull uh, one of them up and says that the buyers have dried up a crick research center says that in july uh, by the top 100 uh, developers, so de uh, data on them, the top 100 developers, the, the volumes, the sales, were just 30% of what they were three years ago. And this is in a market which is a 60 trillion dollar Chinese property market. You can see, I mean, some are calling this uh, almost like a Lehman type moment for China at this point. If you think about what happened back in the subprime days in the United States, the uh, market moved very aggressively against a lot of those homeowners and effectively they gave back the keys. So they were sitting on a, a loss basically on the equity in some of those homes. As you saw the risk escalate, what's happening in China? Pre-sale. So you've already handed the money over to developers. Some of these properties have not yet been built. So you can imagine the contagion risk from the money that a lot of Chinese have now lost through these property developers. They are concerned. It's not about doing due diligence or putting money into a bank account. I mean, that was a discussion we had in Europe back in the day around the European banking crisis. This is trying to do due diligence on property developers where clearly there is no uh, level of transparency because of the extent of the problems that have happened. I mean, Evergrande, if you look at the story, the, the uh, units of this uh, group, 1,300 projects in more than 280 cities. It was a giant. It stretches across various different parts of the country. And if we're now talking about the way you got onto the property ladder was to hand over large, large wads of cash, and in many cases, these were cash buyers, and you have no guarantee of any return because the property is not even built. We're not talking about selling the property down the track. There's nothing there to even sell at this stage. Um, I'll quote some more stats on this because, look, I don't think we're overdoing this. We're not China bashing. We want to see China do well. It is important 
for all of us. If, if, if you've picked up nothing in the last couple of days watching the show, surely you can pick up the fact that if China is in trouble, the world is potentially in trouble. There are other factors, and I'm not saying it's the only factor, but it was the major growth factor for the world economy when we talked about super cycles and things for most of this century. China cannot suffer this badly without it having ripple effects around the world. So this isn't China bashing for any of our, 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 our Sino friends watching there who, who think, oh, CNBC just bashing again. We're not. There's a couple of other stats I want to build up. Deposit balances on the year from the Chinese consumer that you just mentioned who are very worried about getting their money back, let alone making money on these assets as well. China deposit balances have gone through the roof to nearly six uh, trillion uh, remembi uh, from levels that were roughly half that in 2020, roughly a third of that in 2015 as well. So Chinese people are not going out and spending. That's why we're not having the reopening, because they're very, very concerned about what's happening here. Uh, two more things very quickly. One, the developers have combined debts, uh, according to one um, report, of over $5 trillion. Uh, and I'll keep one more stat in there for you, because I find these stats absolutely mind-blowing. Chinese local governments, what percentage of their total revenue do you believe are reliant on the property sector from land sales? 38%. You can't take out 38% of total revenue. I'm not saying it's all going to go, but a large portion of that without having enormous ramifications. Keep in mind, these are the same local governments that have been hit by the COVID curbs, the shutdowns in a lot of these towns and cities, obviously impacting the revenue of these local governments as well. And these are the ones that have the huge debt uh, that they've loaded up on through shadow banking, through various different bond sales that have been issued. In terms of uh, reaction, what happens next? The market has been watching and waiting for stimulus and it has not been forthcoming in a large scale. Uh, you pointed me to a Telegraph article. It was saying that uh, Kaifeng, who is a rate setter at the Central Bank, has called for $550 billion in terms of a blast of helicopter money. I think that's extraordinary. Will we get helicopter money that is a, an old-star form of quantitative easing, uh, yeah. mimicking the West? And we know that China does tend to look Do you know the to the United States, right? Do you know uh, the problem, so, reckon? So perhaps we get it. Absolutely. I think the problem is, if they do do that, if they come up with that $550 billion, which it can ill afford, we can talk about the debt profile, if, but they can ill afford not to do it in some ways, what happens if it fails? And that's a big blow for the prestige uh, of the, the authorities there. I'm going to move on because I know you and I are going to talk about this with a lot of other guests throughout the show as well. Um, I will just add, we've had uh, a Novartis update, kind of one that you've been waiting for for a long time. Novartis, it's got Sandos, of course. It has now given us details and it's invited you, the shareholder, because a lot of you are shareholders, aren't they, to a special meeting, September the 15th. Uh, Novartis EGM, November the 15th, to talk about, to show the listing prospectus ahead of a spin-off vote on Sandos as well. Um, distribution of a dividend in kind of Sandos shares to Novartis shareholders is being proposed. Listing prospectus published. Uh, proposed distribution of a dividend in kind Sandos shares. Uh, one Sandos shares for every five Novartis shares and one Sandos ADR for every five Sandos ADRs. I wouldn't say it's been weighing on the stock, but it's something that we've been raising with the management for a really long time uh, about when are you going to get this done. Uh, it's a bit of corporate restructuring that's been hanging over the company as well. Um, and uh, as you can see, the shares have had a really good five years net net up 23%. But I think shareholders will be pleased to see now the company finally moving to that uh, separate listing uh, of Sandos. Yeah, and we were talking about a, a listing uh, next year. Uh, from this early this month. So that is interesting to see them capture the moment on markets as they plan that spin-off uh, from, 
4th of October, that is quicker than anticipated, so they may see better market conditions at this stage. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.